it's all about power, right? So it's like, okay, yeah, do you want to only produce energy or do you want a material that's going to give you energy and the potential for danger? <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> all right, all right. What's up, guys? We're here on another episode of the Melody Misfits. And as always, my name is Sherison. My name is Asher. And today we have a guest on the podcast and her name is Allie. Allie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? We are doing great. Um, is this still a practice or can we just keep going? <laughs> I was going to say, that worked fine. I was like, like that was great. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was great. I was like, we could just like fuck with that. But that's why I was waiting to see what you're going to do. I was like, just like, you? Because that was fine. Right? That pause is like, mm. I was, you're like, uh, I don't know but, what signal. I was going to be like, yes, yes. <laughs> but let's just run with it. So yeah. uh, we've noticed that a lot of our guests uh, kind of get mixed up with us in the beginning where we introduce <laughs> ourselves. So we try to do a test run and this is how it worked out. But uh, yeah, we're here on another episode of the Millennium of Misfits and we have our friend Ali here uh, and we have a very um, diverse groups in terms of traveled people. Um, I haven't traveled a lot, so I'm not counting me. Asher obviously is in South Korea and Ali, we have our friend. Um, who's kind of been all over the place in South America, and she's going to talk to us about sustainable development. So first off, Ali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and we will kind of let you tell us uh, a little bit about your background and like how you got into the field and um, just your journey thus far around sustainable development. Okay, well, first, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to finally be here. Um, so, uh, yeah, so my background is in sustainable development, but when like my journey to get there wasn't really a straightforward path, it was kind of like a hit and miss situation. So I did start my university career, I guess, in communications and anthropology, which is a, kind of like a weird mix to begin with, but it worked for me. Uh, and I started seeing uh, similar patterns into what I wanted to do for work. So then I started looking into international relations, international law, and just kind of like exploring that uh, path. Because um, I did want to tie in my background, like I'm originally from Colombia, and I did see a lot of conflict between, you know, living in a uh, developing uh, country, and then now being in a developed country, like the contrast and difference, like why? Why is there such a big gap between the societies and you know how we grow up and the difficulties that we face in each of the countries right because even developed or on like developing you still face different challenges um so i wanted to kind of like see how it all started where i could fit into that and how i could help um so yeah so eventually through volunteering and volunteering abroad i started uh, volunteering in costa rica that was like my first international experience it was only for two weeks like really really short um but it was kind of like eye-opening just to like how much you could do and how much potential there was um, just to explore and really not go there with a plan and an agenda, but getting to the place that you wanted to work in and then being there as a tool for them to be, okay, we need help uh, to do all of these tasks. Which one do you think you can help with? Like, do you, are you suitable for that? Yes, no. Okay, let's go. Um, so it was kind of like that, how I got into it. And after I came back from that, I, started looking into different programs for school that would probably get me more uh i guess educated in the topic because i knew nothing and that's how i ended up doing the master development practice in waterloo so it was a practice-based program uh, where i had to do a mandatory internship to graduate and so i ended up going to peru for a few months uh, i worked in the jungle which was pretty amazing it was a difficult experience because i've never been so far away from an urban center 
Um, so just kind of like really knowing the ways of transportation, methods of communication and uh, doing my part as like what my job was and just knowing, like learning how to use the materials that I had there were, were kind of like what really drove me to pursue that. Um, so that's pretty much how I got into it. And yeah, then I ended up going back to Peru for two years and working in the capital. So it was a little bit different, but still within sustainable development. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And I'm assuming you speak Spanish, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I did live in Colombia for, well, I mean, I was born there and I lived there for 13 years. So it's, it's actually my mother tongue. And then that also kind of helped into, I guess, uh, settling into the the work and the position and also getting to know the people that you're working with it it really did help a lot that's awesome i mean language barrier when you got there yeah yeah i mean that's that's so cool i i think you know shares and i we've talked about you know the dreams of having to work and live in a different country i've i've done it through obviously different means in terms of teaching and stuff like that but um that's that's amazing that you've had the chance have you had the chance to work in colombia as well no, unfortunately, I've only like I go there for to visit my family and I've wanted to go work there, but just it hasn't I haven't been able to find the right opportunity yet. Um, but I would love the opportunity to actually explore that idea because now I feel like I know more of Peruvian culture and Peruvian work situations than I do in my own country. And when I'm abroad, everyone's like, oh, you are Colombian, so you must know X, Y and Z. And I'm like, I really don't. <laughs> but <laughs> I want to like I want to learn and so many people that are so knowledgeable and it's crazy how much like how different the cultures are and I've realized like in Peru the people that at least that I was surrounded by they are very big into reading and culture and arts and all of these other things so they knew about um, authors and scientists and you know uh, theoretical thinkers but everywhere in Latin America so like they would speak about Chilean authors Argentinian Colombian and I'm like I know nobody. So let me just jot down all the names and stuff because it'd, it'd be useful information to have because I've been away from that, I guess, agenda for so long that it, it's completely unknown to me. For sure. Yeah. So, but it's, you, so you have it in your plans to kind of go back there one day and work then? Hopefully. I mean, if it happens, yes. That'd be great. <laughs> Where uh, hopefully we can manifest it with this podcast. But um, I, I like that you mentioned that because. There was something that you said there in terms of um, kind of just like the perspective of uh, you had kind of had both you had both perspective living in a developing country and then kind of coming to Canada and being like, oh, this is much different. Um, and I feel like that kind of dictates the conversation around sustainable development of the topic itself, because it's very subjective. I mean, the idea itself is not subjective, but your reaction to it is subjective based on where you are in the world. You know what I mean? It's based on your experience. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's what I kind of wanted to lean into and start off of uh, just understanding your experiences of what the sustainable kind of lifestyle is, how it's kind of approached in different areas of the world. But can you start off with kind of just giving us like a background on what it is and kind of like what it means um, and kind of like the, the importance of it. Yeah, for sure. So it's subjective. It's definitely subjective. So you will have a bunch of people that depending on the sector that you're working in will use it for certain things. So I just want to start off with that because you will hear, for example, mining companies that they are all about sustainability and, uh, you know, going green and trying to be better for the environment. But it's like that doesn't take away the fact that they're a mining company and they are, 
you know, extracting resources and most of the time is limited resources that will impact an environment and it doesn't matter if you plant a tree, you still destroy the forest. So it's, it's, it really depends on how you look at it. So you have to be very, I guess, aware of who's talking and who, like in which context is being used. Uh, but for me, sustainable, like sustainable development, it's all about being aware and being aware not only of the environment, but also being aware of the cultural aspect, political, religious, and everything that makes up a culture or a system. So trying to use all of the resources, trying to get everybody involved, being inclusive, like, you know, being aware of gender uh, disparities, age disparities as well, like the struggles and how you can make it better for everybody. So how you can use the resources um, better uh, in a more wise manner, um, how you can get everybody in the community involved, how can you, you can improve the lifestyle of people, but then also not at the expense of something else. So just trying to balance everything out. But, and then also what I understand how I, I like to see sustainable development is not something that you do like that the north, the global north as we know it, does to the global south. Because usually that's how you see it, right? Like you think sustainable development and it's like, oh, yeah, we go to the global south and we go help, we go build schools and, you know, create water programs and all of these things. When in reality, sustainable development is something that is needed everywhere. Like you need programs in the north, in Canada, we need so many programs to protect the environment, to not allow the like a big pipeline to be built because it's going to destroy a bunch of ecosystems. It's going to impact the life of native communities. Um, and that's all about sustainable development. Like, okay, how do you avoid doing that, but then still getting the resources that you need in order to ensure a equitable lifestyle for everybody? Like, how do you make waste management programs successful and not end, like, end up with huge uh, landfills or sending waste, which is a problem that Canada has had before, to other countries and then polluting other environments because as long as it doesn't happen in your soil, then it's fine, right? So it's kind of like taking everything into consideration, um, but because it's so broad and there's so many things that you need to take into account, it can be very dense and sometimes very complicated to actually successfully implement something. 100%. So. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this sustainable movement has something that's uh, risen over the last the last couple of decades. Like we're not that old, obviously, but this I don't think was much of a conversation, you know, maybe in the last 50 years or so or before that. And I remember when we were in university, we all went to the same university. They used to talk about the, talk about the triple bottom line. Right. Like so revenue and then like corporate social responsibility and then like the environment. Right. So like everybody's not talking about sustainability. So before it's like, oh, what's your company doing for the community? Now it's like, what's your company doing for the environment as a whole, right? Um, so yeah, every company is, I guess, trying to be more uh, sustainable. But with what you said in terms of like the pipeline, like in Canada, like you, like, you know, obviously it will hurt the environment. But the flip side is, is that like you do have natural resources in your country that you want to make use of because if you do make use of those natural resources, then you're creating jobs, you're creating more wealth for your country and stuff like that. So like. How do you balance it? Because even, for example, like countries in the Middle East, right? Like they are rich in oil and stuff like that. So it's like, how do you balance sustainable development with trying to maximize the potential for your country or company? Um, I think at this point, it's all about innovation. Because we are at a point where 
we need to change the way like the lifestyle that we've been having because we know like we are aware that it's not good it's not good for us it's not good for the environment and if we keep going the way we're going we're not really gonna get very far like past 2050 it's game over and honestly that deadline keeps kind of getting closer now as we see it right so i i don't think it's about you know you have resources exploit them it's about okay what do we have right now and what can we use or what can we do in order to okay we have yes we have oil but then what can we do in order to not use everything with oil and then see what we already have so for example there's a lot of you see so many initiatives there's one that's i think the biggest one that i've seen is in india and i'm not really sure which city it was in um but it's how they had such a big problem with plastic waste um but then uh, what they decided to do or like a small local organization what they did is that they started using the actual plastic recycling it and then using it as a, one of the materials for concrete or like to pave the roads so they started actually reducing a bunch of their plastic waste and then reducing the materials that they had to mine or exploit the res the natural resources for concrete like mixing concrete with um, then they started mixing it with plastic and then that's what they're using to pave roads now and they started realizing that it's a lot more durable. It's it endures a lot better with the weather weather change, changes, and they're reducing their plastic waste. So it's like okay, great. So you have these initiatives. We have materials. We have like uh, I don't want to say waste because it's not really that, but we have the resources available that not all has to be the natural resources that we are used to exploiting to make different things. So. It's all about trying to see a different picture. So how can you stop, um, I don't know, the uh, reefs bleaching? It's like you need to make a better water quality for the oceans. How do you do that? Stop pollution going into the seas. Okay, so what's, how is the pollution getting into the seas? It's through the rivers, through the cities. Like everything, that's, everything is connected. So how can you make it better? Um, so yeah, it's just about innovation really and like seeing how we can make things different and like uh, renewable energy sources, wind turbines. I actually, I saw a video today how they've designed a, co a completely different type of new wind turbine that is vertical rather than like the aeolic version that is supposed to be a lot more energy efficient or supposed to be way uh, better for space because it's not as huge as the other ones. And if you put them together, um, they actually work a lot better because with the wind turbines that we have now, they, if you put a bunch of them together, it's one will impact negatively the next one because I, the way the wind goes, I'm not a scientist into that. <laughs> but these new, these new designs are supposed to be a lot more efficient and a lot more affordable. So it's like even the ideas that we have to be more sustainable will be changing and they need to be changed. But it's like you need people that, that are dedicated into making them better and like implementing them because if we never transition, and how do you expect for things to get better? 100%. I was patiently waiting for when you were going to call me out of drinking from this. I knew you were, I knew plastic was going to come up somewhere. And I know like you're probably dying inside. <laughs> I know. I thought I'm like, mm, uh, how do I put it nicely? Uh, it's like, how are you going to have me in your podcast and you're drinking through a plastic bottle, man? So come on, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Play, so it's also like a double whammy there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I promise it's recycled. And, uh, my water bottle is just in the dishwasher. But um, that, I, I like that you like, so, like some of the things that you touched on there. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a fine balance, I find, especially in the business world with kind of like how you manage resources. But that's what I, I that's what I want to understand from your experience working in the industry like 
how do you guys, um, and, and by you guys, I mean the companies that you've worked for, how do you approach a business to be like, hey, maybe you should do this? Because I, I imagine for the most part, people are like, don't tell me what to do. Uh, like nobody likes to be told that they're doing something wrong. Um, but at the same time, it's also like, it almost seems like the only solution to this is to find smart people to re-engineer everything that we were doing, right? Like it takes like an Elon Musk to come around and be like, hey, we can actually have electric cars. And you know what I mean? Like, and no, everyone's like, wow, I didn't think it would ever be affordable. So like, how do you guys approach like a company or a business to say, hey, this is something that you can do, or maybe you should invest into uh, research and development into how you can do this better. Like, well, how does that conversation like work for you guys? I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, we all live in a capitalist society, right? So like everything needs to make money or be productive in one way or another to cost, like to be beneficial for the person to be interested, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to do something. What do I get back for it? So it's all about knowing like how to sell that or like what you can create with a product and how it can be beneficial. How can you monetize it? Which it's obviously not the best idea because you, that's not what you want to sell. Um, but at the end of the day, like, that's how you get people interested. So for example, um, we worked in a local urban agriculture project. So like, how do you get people interested in urban agriculture in the middle of a desert? Because Lima, the capital city of Peru is Lima, and it's in the middle of a desert. Like it's, it's sand everywhere. The soil is not, uh, it's not productive. It's, it's really bad, actually. So it's like, first people don't even think of that possibility so how do you even like, like how do you get people interested to invest the time invest money resources into creating something that really is what you would think is at a loss so you started doing research like we started reading articles so it's like you can do the traditional type of farming which takes a lot of resources a lot of time and a lot of money obviously but then okay if you do it the right way so, which is uh if you sell it right and if you see the benefits of it you can sell that so what we focused on we did focus on traditional type of far style farming but our selling point was okay on top of that we're going to create a certification system so everyone that like wants to participate in this program will go through modules you get educated you'll have to go through um commercialization uh, production of um the foods or you know uh, crops uh in an organic way so then by the end of the whole project everyone received a certificate and then we would try to facilitate their entrance into the market and with the certificate they could sell their products in competitive prices so right now you have a huge boom of organic consumers in the world where everyone doesn't want to eat gmo they want everything organic they're very conscious about their body a lot of people are um you know what you're putting in and like how that can impact your body like your body the uh, nutrients that you're getting so we made sure that these people that invested their money and their time to create these products were aware of that. And then they were able to like, we'll be able to sell that and not get eaten by the huge market because at the end of the day, a lot of these products are overpriced. Um, so then they would like, they would be creating their products without a certificate and without any knowledge and selling them way under value. So what we taught them is like, okay, you're getting in my life, but everybody in the other markets, because you know, that they're selling something that's prettier and nicer but like what are the benefits of that so we try to like facilitate that entrance into the market and to a point it was so successful that we did have some organizations like companies that reached out to us and being like we're interested in buying the product that you guys are making how can we make business so we had one of the like largest tea makers like company teas in the country to like come and talk to us being like we're interested 
I had to leave, unfortunately, before I knew how that whole thing processed or like if it took no. off or not. And then COVID happened. So I'm not really sure. But we did call the attention, right? Like that's how you, that's how we did it. Just trying to look at the benefits and also looking at how many, like how many different ways you can impact it. Because we didn't only focus on the food, but it was also about creating communities and stronger like community gardens. So like a lot of people did get involved. And then also we had the whole environmental aspect of it. So how is that type of farming better for the environment and water resource management and all of these other things that a lot of other organizations were also interested in. So it was about just like finding the resources and the networks and then just pulling like, you know, pulling the strings. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, ideally almost everyone likes the idea of sustainable development and being, you know, more economically friendly, but sometimes in the real world, it is hard to put into practice, right. For multiple reasons. So for example, right now we're going through the pandemic, right? So a lot of people would say like, man, screw, screw the future, screw sustainable development. I'm just going to do me right. Like it's, it's a selfish like thing to to say or think, but it, it is true. A lot of people think that way. And then also for small businesses, like we, like you said, we live in a capitalistic society and it's very, very hard to compete with these big companies that may be selling the same product or comparable or complementary product to what you're offering and also to be able to compete in the marketplace and, and be sustainable at the same time. Like you said, innovation is necessary, but it creates like more barriers to entry, if you understand what I'm trying to say. So it is extremely difficult for, you know, players in the market, especially new players in the market to try and, you know, find a way in order to compete in the marketplace. No, for sure. And I think one of the setbacks from this pandemic is that, that a lot of people are not really focused on the long term because right now you're just focusing on like okay am I going to make it to next month or how is the situation going to be next month like am I going to have a job like it the uncertainty is not helping obviously for the long-term goals that sustainable development and the UN and these global kind of institutions had planned because now everything is short term so it's like what can you do faster more efficient and just you know what like well how can you accomplish that what is already in place it's not really the time to be innovative because every like a lot of sectors are closing down a lot of people are not going to work a lot of like engineers or programs like that could be moving forward or not so that's kind of a problem yeah and just kind of a little bit of a follow-up so in terms of um renewable energy renewable resources like wind solar um it's it's interesting because like not like you said like in peru like it's kind of like a desert right so they can't really plant trees or do stuff like that there because their soil is unsuitable for that so i guess my question is like how do different countries around the world navigate that because for example in canada like we have like harsh winters and not a lot of sunlight in the winter time right so solar i guess is a viable option for us um in the summertime and spring and fall but like when it comes to winter like we're not going to be getting as as many uh daylight sun hours as compared to countries like near the equator right where it may be more suitable for solar so like do nations need to like i guess look at what's what the potential is for them and then kind of just go full steam ahead of that like how do countries navigate that definitely like you will never ever find a system that's like one size fits all okay and i think that's what a lot of countries do try and sell because um it's like the 
opposite of imperialism because when for example you have countries like the states where they're like oh we have the perfect economic model and we're going to apply it to everybody that does business with us and that's never really worked to the benefit of anybody aside from the states like you can't apply that it doesn't it's not realistic and the problem is that a lot of countries developing countries look at the developed ones and they're like oh look at how great they are we should do what they're doing and that system fails because First, the mentality of people is not the same. The economy is not the same. The politics are never the same. So you do need to like be very like focused or be very aware of where you are and the conditions that you have, um, and then look at what's the best way to kind of you know make your way through that and develop in in that manner. So for example, yes, Peru, like well, the thing with Peru, it's like the coast is all desert, but then you do have like the huge mountain range, and then you have the, like part of the huge section of the country is the Amazon forest, right? And now they're suffering because of the fires and everything. So it's, it's a problem, but they do have a lot of potential, say, for example, for solar energy, but obviously they're not using it right now because there's not investment or like not enough investment to go into that sector. Um, but there is a potential for that, for example, or maybe using the rivers to do hydraulic energy, but without making dams. So there's like different systems that you can put in place that are not necessarily detrimental, but you can, I don't want to say exploit, but take advantage of in a way um, to really kind of reach the goals that you want for development. So in Canada, yeah, we don't, I mean, some sections could have potential for so, uh, solar energy, but we do have a huge potential for wind because we have like in the prairies, they have ex extensive areas with just no mountains, whatever. There's no barriers. So there's just wind. Like you could have a lot of energy, like a lot of energy being produced in those areas, but it's not, I don't think it's being used as much as it could be. Um, I'm also, for example, like here in Canada, because of the harsh winters and we have so much snow, um, a lot of the water could be used or, you know, could be used for agriculture and a bunch of other ways rather than using the freshwater res like reserves that we have. The water that we lose from the snow itself, just because it goes down our drains and then elsewhere and it ends up in the ocean again, we can't take that back. So it's all about like really getting to know where you can find your resources without, you know, it causing a bunch of disasters everywhere and how you can like use them wisely. I guess that's the proper thing to say, like use them wisely. Yeah. Actually, I love that question because that kind of led into my next point. Um, and Ali, you kind of mentioned kind of like with, with Canada specifically uh, out West in the prairies. So obviously that's a huge issue right now with the West, right? With Alberta, um, their whole model out west is kind of built around oil mm -hmm. so it, it, it's all it's obviously let's look let's kind of set aside the politicization of the issue itself because obviously politics are always going to corrupt everything but how how do you approach or like what is your kind of strategy to approach the people um let's just take alberta as an example who over maybe two three generations all they've known is oil, right? Like they have generations of family who are like, all right, time to go to the oil rig. Like that's all they've known. And like, that's kind of like built into your family um, understanding of what you do for a living and how are you benefiting the company because, or sorry, the country, because obviously they're able to look and be like, yeah, we're, we're doing this work and look at how it translates into so much money for the country. And rightfully so they make a lot of money for us as Canada. Mm -hmm. But how do you kind of like, what's like your strategy or like, what would you su suggest in terms of approaching these people to kind of retrain them? Because there's always going to be some pushback. Um, right now, it seems like they're trying to double down on oil, which doesn't make any sense to me. So like, kind of like some best practices on how we can approach the people to be like, 
you're not doing something wrong. You were just not given all the answers, right? And now we have them and this is how we can shift. So like, what, what, what's like your strategy for that? Honestly, I think the biggest thing right now is that there's a huge misconception that trying to transition into clean energies or just sustainable living, it, it means that you're going to lose your job and it's just going to be worse for the economy. You're not going to have the same type of economic input and output that you get from the traditional way of living and traditional oil exploitation, if we focus in this case specifically. I think there needs to be like a huge, I mean, this will come from like government incentive or like, you know, at least society-based initiatives um that you need to train the people that have been so dependent in this type of economies um to the alternatives right so let's say for example you're gonna have people that have worked their whole lives in the oil industry okay but you want to start focusing or you want to start doing a transition into for example electric cars or um the different uh, renewable energy sectors so what are the potentials in those areas? So if you can install wind turbines, you need a lot of engineers. You need a lot of engineers to go into those, like to get into these programs, to build them, to set them up, to look at the areas where they're gonna be put um, for repairment for the service, because they need to be obviously taken care of over the years. Uh, when do you need to exchange them? When you need to like, you know, do a bunch of things like that generates jobs. So right. as long as there's like, the, like if you facilitate the transition not only for the sector like tech, uh, in a technical sense or technological sense sorry but if you also facilitate it to the people like it's not a foreign concept that's like okay it's a huge winter mine how does it work what does it do other than spin around like what else goes into that they will be able to understand like okay cool so now we can like go into that sector and we can work in there and we can train more people to like be in there so it'll right. generate a lot, like a lot more jobs. And it's not only for the wind sector, but like you also have solar panels and hydro. And I think nuclear is a big thing in Canada, although it's not the best idea ever, but you know, it's in there also. Um, they're trying to promote it. So it's just about training the people that there are alternatives. And it's really curious because for example, I, there's a mining company really close to my house and I checked their website to see their social responsibility initiatives. And they're like, oh, we've trained our, like, our, 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 um, all of our workers into new safety, uh, new uh, machinery equipment, what we need to do to ensure that everyone, you know, that we are not um, pushing over the edge of the sector that we're working in to make sure that there's no uh, hills or, sorry, the rocks falling down, you know. That's a lot of technical teachings and, like, uh, that's a lot of knowledge that you're giving to the workers. It's like, okay, that's great. But then why are you still like teaching them the exact same thing that has been going on for the last 70 years rather than, okay, we're not going to exploit this type of resource anymore. We want to start working with different machinery that can recycle pl plastics and we can make it into pavement. Like right. the technology is there and they have the money. It's not like they don't have money. Like they have the money to train people. They have the money to invest in new machinery to do a bunch of different tasks. So it's just about, really thinking okay do i really want to exploit a hundred percent of this resource that i will find down like in the spot that i'm standing on right now or you know do i want to do something better and have a probably bigger positive impact all around me rather than so i think it's just about kind of showing people that there's a different way and it doesn't have to be bad like just because you're transitioning doesn't mean you're going to lose your job and everyone's just going to be out of a job no it's really not yeah all these sustainable badges that companies are like showcasing now i'm like 
great, but it it just like a band aid rather than a solution. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, today on Twitter, someone commented uh, like I, I even forget what his name was. I probably shouldn't even mention this because I yeah, never mind. Screw that. <laughs> Erase that topic. No, that's <laughs> okay. Thing. I uh, I find it interesting because like you said, it's kind of like giving like little these little badges to see like companies saying, oh, we're doing a good job. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, like a lot of these companies, they have like, you know, factories in China that are producing a lot of the products that we use. And then those factories are obviously polluting the environment. So what if like this shoe or whatever is made out of 30% recycled materials? It's like, bruh, the factory is doing like <laughs> so much damage to the environment. You know what I mean? It's like these little things here and there to make them sound like they're being sustainable and cool and all, but they are doing, they are harming the environment still. And another thing that we mentioned when we're talking about politics, I don't know if you know this, but like a long time ago, um there was uh in terms of nuclear i think it's like uh uranium is what's used for like um for nuclear power oh. or something like that Say it again, <laughs> person? i probably shouldn't like the brown guy in the podcast is like uranium is used for bombs yeah <laughs> for no you're right it is for bombs right and yeah. so like, they had like um because it's also used for for power if i'm not mistaken or if it's nuclear or what, nuclear energy but um, a long time ago, um, maybe I'll send the video for this, but a long time ago, they had a choice between thorium and uranium. And apparently, uh, thorium is better for the environment. It's less toxic, but they went with uranium because it had that nuclear power in terms of like bombs and stuff like that. So they're like, oh, we should go with that option instead. So it just kind of goes to show how like, even though you may have like a better alternative on the side, it's like politics wins in the end, right? So it's kind of like, I guess, what the battle, what we're up against in terms of sustainable development, right? Yeah, seriously. I'm looking this up right now. Uh, I'm looking at a Forbes article. Thorium is three times more abundant in nature than uranium. And actually, the reactor, thorium reactors produce far less waste and the waste is generated in a much less radioactive way or something like that. So it looks like holistically, it's a much better alternative to uranium. I'm sure there's a money reason as to why they went uh, went with that, you know? Exactly. It's all about power, right? So it's like, okay, yeah. Do you want to only produce energy or do you want a material that's going to give you energy and the potential for danger? <laughs> like it's. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I have, I have one question, um, kind of one last question on this, uh, on this topic and I'll pass it over to Asher, but it's going to be a bit cynical, but I just want to understand like your point of view on this. Cause it's like, it, it just happens in every industry. So I want to know, like, from, from your experience working in um, sustainable <clears throat> development industry and as part of the movement, like, what is your take on this? And it's that, like, I feel like at the only way there's going to be meaningful change is when it's too late. And at that point, the only people or the only players in the market that are going to be able to make those meaningful change are the people that made the issue to begin with, right? So how I use, like, as an example would be, like, um, will be the nicotine industry right they created mm-hmm. cigarettes it like they literally put out ads with doctors saying it's good for you even though they yeah. knew it was killing you and then 50 years later people started dropping like flies and they're like oh yeah it's bad for you blah 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 and now they actually have their like they've shifted their business into like nicorette gums or something like that so it's like on one hand you're giving the people the problem and then giving them the solution as well or they've transitioned into the vape industry where it's like, oh yeah, here's a better alternative. So it's like you profited off the like all of the, the problems and then now you're profiting off the solution. So I feel like 
all these mining companies who are sitting on billions and billions of dollars. It's like, you're the only one who has the power realistically to be able to switch that. And then you're going to profit off of it anyway. So it's like you lose either way uh, from that standpoint. But for you guys working in the industry, like, do you look at that as a win? Like, are you just like, we don't care as long as someone starts solving the problem or is it like, we need to make you accountable and solve the problem. Like which one is more important? That's a tough one. Um, but I think there's like two questions in there. So if we need to make them accountable and solve the problem, but then also it's like, what's the standpoint or like, who's going to make the difference. Right. Um, so I, I am a huge person for making people accountable. Like you need to be responsible for your actions. And <coughs> obviously that's hasn't happened. Like we've known about climate change since I think the first, time they made claims about it was like in the 50s or 60s right so like we've known about it for a minute and no one's done anything and then it started getting serious in the 90s where they're like okay no this is kind of like you know accelerating or it's happening a lot sooner like faster than we anticipated 20 like 2000s come in 2010s like now in 2020 and it's like jesus christ the deadline or like the projections that we had made 20 years ago are not even like what we are seeing right now um and i don't know if you've known this but or like if you've read this recently, but the projections that they had for like the temperature and like the changes that they were expecting around 2050, they're now saying that like we might see some of them start taking place in 2024. So that's like in four years. So this idea that we had until 2030 to meet our goals and like make a change. So then by 2050, we'd survive. It's like, okay, it's crashed the whole plan. Like we're late. Like we, it's, it's already too late, which is unfortunate to say, but like looking at the facts, it is. And we're not acting fast enough to make a, to, to have like any kind of significant hope from my perspective. Obviously I'm in the sector, so I'm like, I'm not gonna change. Like I'm still gonna be doing what I'm doing. Um, but it's, it's not looking good and we're not acting fast enough, right? So yes, we need to hold these people accountable. And I was thinking about it the other day, actually. It's like, it'd be like, you know how, you have the CEO of Chevron or like the CEO of like big oil companies that are responsible for the biggest environmental disasters that have taken place. Um, how many people have they killed? Like, no, they did not personally went and shot somebody, but they ca have caused so much pollution, so much contamination, deforestation, um, just huge losses of resources that people were so dependent on, like their actual livelihoods were so dependent on, but because you took that away they died so it's like how like that's that's not okay so it's 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 beyond me how they still get away with this and how no one's really holding them accountable but i don't think we should forget that like if they go ahead and tomorrow release a press statement being okay we're not like, we're closing every single pipeline every single like mining mining company that we have and we are transitioning right now to solar energy or renewable resources it's still like, great, yes, that's what we want. But it doesn't solve the fact that we've already done damage for more than 50 years. So yes, you still need to be account held accountable. So I think they need to put, like obviously put the money where it needs to be to do a positive impact. But at the same time, it's, it doesn't take away the fact that they, they have done atrocities. So it's, it's kind of like both things. And one shouldn't, like just because if I hit you and I say sorry, it doesn't take away the fact that I hit you right like i still hurt you and, i love it i love it That's and it, it, it's exactly like that but just in a massive idea right so i i think that people shouldn't forget and then also um something that i i i, I learned 
actually, because I, I was very hopeless about this whole thing. Um, but then also not focusing on like what the big player, like the people with money can do. Um, obviously, that's the biggest part because the money. Um, but then also what the actual society, like the communities can do to influence decisions. Because if you look at the Paris Agreement, like you have so many countries, like over 150 countries that signed on to this agreement to be, okay, we are committed to making a change to uh, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, to do it in every single sector, because that's how we are going to save ourselves uh, and the planet. And then they, 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 they actually outline goals and they have like very specific numbers in, in the sectors that they want to address and how, like they've said, how they're going to accomplish it. And I say this because it's very, it's not explicit and it's very broad and very general. And sometimes you're just like, okay, well, where are you going to get the money from? Anyways, this is a whole other topic. But anyway, because the system that we live in, no other country, no government institution can hold Canada against the wall and be like, you're not meeting your goals. Like, what are you doing? Like, you have sovereignty. You can't override another country's sovereignty and like push them to do something if they don't want to. But they did say they were going to do it. So as civil, like civil society, as citizens of our countries, it's our responsibility to know what it is that we've made the commitments for, what they are, how we're going to meet them, and then go up to like our local governments and be like, okay, bro, so two years ago, you did say that you were going to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions by 30%. Uh, like the numbers show, you haven't reduced 30% at all. And we are, you know, three years closer to the deadline. So how are we going to meet this? Like, we need to hold them accountable. And as citizenships, we, like citizens, we can actually legally enforce that. Like we, like govern, um, a group of students in Colombia took the government to court because they were violating their rights to a future and they won. Like they won the specific case to make the government more responsible for the environment and they created a whole law for this. And it, it, like it's possible. So it's like, it's as citizens, I think people don't know what it is that their countries are supposed to be doing. And so you don't really hold them accountable for that, right? So they just get away with a bunch of things. That's why they're still getting away with signing off pipelines, signing off more mining contracts, uh, extensions of contracts that were supposed to be over 20 years ago. So it's like, we need to be aware of what's happening. And that's, that's something I learned recently because I was feeling so hopeless. I'm like, okay, so who, who, is going to be like you're not doing like you're not meeting your requirements you're gonna have to pay a penalty you know there's like something but there's not um at least outside of your country to kind of enforce them yes they can have checkups but they can't legally do anything to be like ah you missed the deadline damn that sucks so it's 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 our responsibility to do something and i think that's that's it is the cynical thought or that cynical idea kind of makes me feel a little bit empowered that I can do something. So just knowing what it is that you're fighting for and who to address it to, because at the end of the day, it's a democracy. So we have the right to demand these things. It's true. It's like strength in numbers, right? So the more people that come together for a certain cause, we're seeing it with the whole Black Lives Matter thing, then the more power you have to create change. Um, exactly. And... It, I kind of have a question. So obviously we know that like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of push and there's a lot of uh, revolution happening in terms of like uh, the car industry with a lot of people driving electric cars. And I think they said by 2050, I don't know which who said it was United Nations or whoever, but apparently there's a law that states that by 2050, 
most countries are going to start producing um, gas vehicles and a lot of them are just going to be producing electric vehicles, which is awesome. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't know too much about is how if us as individuals put energy back onto the grid, the government will pay you. Do people know this? Like where, like if you create your own energy into the grid, like you get like reimbursed for that? I don't uh, know this. So there's like a thing to that too, though. Like, you gotta be careful because it does depend. Like, you need to have a grid system in place in like to begin with to get money back potentially. But then that's something that also needs to be implemented by the government itself to encourage people to join the grid. So how it works is like, say for example, you have your house and your community or your neighborhood created a grid. So you are plugged into the grid and you like you have solar panels in your house and say you produce um 100% of the energy that you consume one year uh but then the next year you got rid of some appliances or you learned how to be more energy efficient so then you have leftover energy so because you're plugged into the grid that leftover energy can't be stored or like as we have the technology right now we don't know how to store solar energy for long periods of time so it needs to be constantly consumed otherwise it's just wasted so because you're plugged into the grid another house that may be using a lot more things or say for example you have a factory three houses away they use a lot more energy that maybe they're not producing themselves but because every house in your neighborhood is is producing way more than what they're using the factory itself can take that and then either the factory pays you for taking your energy or the government gives you the money as like the total amount of energy that you produce um and then like it gives you an incentive right so people do start joining the system but it's it's a, like the government itself needs to implement the grid and needs to you know have this infrastructure to make that happen and then people need to be interested in being part of that because if it's just the one house in a whole grid you're not going to have enough to do anything but yeah it it is that or there's also some countries i think costa rica is one of them that has i think canada has that too that is an incentive for people to plant trees. Like, so if you have huge plots of land, the government will pay you to maintain the trees that you have in your property or to plant more because it is helping to absorb more, uh, more greenhouse gas emissions and you know, kind of contribute to the overall uh, environment of your area. Yeah, so, so there that's... are incentives. Yeah, that's pretty much what my point was. It's like, why aren't we backing these incentives? Like this, like, like you said, in Canada, we have huge, huge amounts of land, right? So that incentive could work for planting more trees. And then also, yeah, with the whole grid system, like I, I, I'm pretty sure people are smart enough to say like, hey, man, that sounds like a good idea. I don't think it would take too, too much. Obviously, right now, in terms of the COVID situation, and it's going to be difficult. But before that, or after this, this pandemic, I can see people getting behind that, like, Yes, there's the initial investment, obviously, with in terms of investing in solar or whatever um, in your house in order to create that energy. But once that's done, then hopefully in the long run, it should pay for itself, right? So these are little things that like maybe if we start like a campaign around, we could be able to, you know, help push the agenda for a sustainable development. For sure. And like you also have that with like cars have that incentive as well. Like if you have like if you buy a an electric car i'm pretty sure the government also gives you an incentive for that as well right um, but i feel like there's a lot of things that people don't know that they can possibly do themselves to make a difference so things super simple like taking the time to retrofit your house or see how energy efficient your house is like looking at your appliances how much energy they consume um and then just seeing like how much energy you're consuming like uh, for example in heating or ac you're using in the house 
So if you have like a tiny little leak or a tiny little gap between one of the windows, you don't know how much energy is actually or heat or AC is escaping through that. So then that makes your like it makes your house to consume more energy. So just fixing that little hole can actually save you a lot of money because you're saving more in energy that it takes to you know make the house as it is. So there's a lot of incentives. I know in Waterloo, there's a big organization that focuses or that works in doing the analysis in the houses to see how efficient they are. And then they give recommendations and even offer the services to retrofit homes. That way people can take advantage of that and then reduce a bunch of their, like, uh, their bills. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that idea a lot. I think um, I, I was just thinking about like how the government refers to the Paris, uh, the Paris Agreement and they talk about like, hey, like the carbon, the, the carbon limit or the carbon surplus or deficit, or whatever. And they, and they, they almost view it like a currency. And the way you described it to be like, hey, if you can just give everyone that ability to create energy, and then now you can see the difference between how much you're using and spending. And now you have a surplus and people can buy it off you. It's like, this sounds like a dystopian Black Mirror episode where like currency becomes like how much carbon or energy you create, right? I think that's For cool. real. Like it's, it's, I mean, everything can be monetized if you really think about it. So it's all, it goes all back to how can you sell that product, right? Exactly. I love that a lot. I, I learned so much right now. Cool. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I, uh, I don't have any more questions, Sharsan. Do you have anything else to, to say? I'm good, man. Ali, thank you so much. Uh, no, this thank was you. super eye-opening. I don't know about you, Asher, but like half of the conversation, I was like nodding my head, but I was like, holy shit, I didn't know any of this. <laughs> no same here it was very eye-opening for me and yeah thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge i'm not the most environmentally friendly person but i am trying you know so hopefully day by day and week by week i can slowly make strides to become better at it no man that's honestly awesome as long as you're trying as long as you're making like one little change in your lifestyle it, it can make a huge impact really just being more conscious and being aware i think that's 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 the start hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. If there's anything anyone can take away from this episode, it's that the little things count and it starts with every one of us. So Ali, thank you so much for this episode. I think this is, this is amazing information and people really need to look into it a lot more. Um, we'll definitely love to have you on for another episode in the future. If, uh, if we want to continue this, cause I'm sure we can go on for hours. No, definitely. Like I really enjoy this and you guys are awesome. And your questions were definite, like super insightful because it, it made me think, but I'm like, wait, no, I, I know this. <laughs> so, no, it was great. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, Next time we'll try and stump you. <laughs> testing oh, <your> knowledge. <laughs> sure. I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, man. All right, guys. That yeah. was another episode of the Mill Myths. Uh, we'll be back soon. Thank you so much, guys. I had so much fun on this. See ya. Okay. Bye. <laughs>